Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Also, as you are coming in, if you did not get a bulletin, there's a handout that's going to help you uh, take notes this morning. If you didn't get one of these sheets, it's kind of a, I don't know what color that is, cream? Acru. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Thanks, Terry. If you didn't get one of these, if you want to raise your hand, and we've got some deacons in the back that can get one of these to you. Imagine for a moment that uh, this week you decide you want to spend a little time with the Lord. Uh, you're going you're gonna to spend a little bit of time in his word. Uh, it could happen. You might want to do that. And then imagine that you decide that you're just going to flip open your Bible, right, and decide, what does God have to say to me this morning? And chances are pretty good that if you do that, you're going to flip open your land in the Old Testament because that's about two-thirds of the Bible. So you flip it open, you land in the Old Testament. Let's say you land right here, Leviticus chapter 11. Okay, this is your verse, this is your quiet time for the day. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. They shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses. You shall detest. Amen. <laughs> right? So you read that and you, first thing you go, what in the world? What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you very simple terms what that means. What that means is it's sin to eat shrimp or lobster. Okay, so if this afternoon you're thinking, I'm going to run out of here, I'm heading to Fish Daddy's, order salmon, not shrimp and not lobster. It's sin, right? Well, believe it or not, this was the fundamental theological question that the early church struggled with. Not, not what to eat for lunch, but more broadly, how does the church relate to the law? How much of the law applies to us just parts and how do we pick and choose how do we know well this semester we're going to study the book of galatians galatians is going to help us answer that question but in order to understand galatians there's all kinds of old testament throughout the book of galatians in particular galatians alludes to all four of the major biblical covenants so what i want to do this morning kind of as a foundation before we get into galatians in a couple weeks is I want to uh, relay that theological foundation for the book of Galatians. We're going to walk through the four biblical covenants. But where I want to begin this morning is I want to do just a little bit of very fast review of the storyline of the Bible. Okay, we're going to go, uh, if you're visiting for the first time, this, is, this morning is kind of going to be like information download. It's, this is um, going to be very heavy theologically and biblically. I'm going to race through the whole Bible from front to back uh, in 35 minutes Hang on. Uh, that's why I gave you a sheet so you can take notes and you can go back and kind of fill in details as we go. Uh, most Sundays aren't going to be like this, but um, we're, we're going to cover a lot of material. And I'm, I'm probably going to go a few minutes over time, so just buckle up and, and get ready, okay? So let's start by going all the way back to the beginning. God, God creates, and in creation, he reveals his glory. Glory is a shorthand word for God's nature and his attributes or his personality. Who is God? God creates, and in creation, he reveals himself. And the very pinnacle of creation is man and woman. Adam and Eve made in the very image and likeness of their creator. And so they have this unique uh, capacity built into them that they can take this glory or this, this nature and personality of God and they can spread it throughout the entire earth. That's God's plan. That's why he created. So that his glory would spread everywhere and that people would take that glory 
and spread it throughout all of creation. But you remember Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were not content with spreading the glory of God. They wanted their own glory. They said uh, they responded to Satan's temptation that they didn't have to be under God and representing God, but they could represent themselves. And so they usurped the authority of God, and rather than getting more glory for themselves, what did they get? Talked about it last week. They got slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to death. And the amazing thing is that God didn't just quit on us right there and destroy mankind and come up with another plan. But Adam and Eve continued living out their lives. The problem was that mankind just got worse and worse and worse and worse. We think it's bad in our day. It was really, really bad back then. I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made them. Now, if you were reading this for the very first time, you would think, "Uh uh-oh, but I'm still here. But it looks like God has given up. Has he quit? Has he changed his plan? Is he going to start over? In verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God looks out at all of mankind and he finds one man in his family that really want to follow God. Just one. And so he says, Noah, I I want to start over through you. But in order to do so, you're going to have to be protected because I'm going to send my judgment on the earth. I'm going to flood the earth, wipe out all of mankind. So you need to build an ark. And that ark will protect you. If you're in the ark, you will be safe. And so Noah builds an ark in an area where there are no lakes and there is no ocean. And by faith, he builds an ark. He trusts God at his word. And he is spared when rains come from above and the floods come up from below. And the earth opens up and waters rise and all of mankind is wiped out. And Noah is spared. And at the end of that time, God speaks to Noah. Noah comes out of the ark. Would you look with me in chapter 8, verse 20? And it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. In other words, mankind hasn't changed, but I'm not going to do this again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice in verse 6, it goes on, it says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Where have we heard that before? That's Genesis chapter 1. That's God's initial commission to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As you're filling it, the assumption is you're going to carry the knowledge of my character, my glory throughout all of mankind because you are made in my image. And here's how you know that I'm going to stick with my plan. When you look up after a storm, you're going to see something in the skies. It's a rainbow. 
Every time we see a rainbow, there was a storm. Just one rain. Remember this summer, we only had one rain. But when that rain came, we were driving around, and there was a great rainbow, and we stopped the car. Because the kids couldn't see it from the back seat, so we stopped the car, and we opened the windows, and we got, let everybody get out of their seats, and they looked and said, you see that? Man, isn't that beautiful? What colors do you see? And we painted that rainbow in our minds, and we saw all the colors. Why is that there? Because God has not quit on us. God's plan remains the same. He is going to glorify himself through men and women. And the storyline of the Bible is how he's going to do it. But do you understand, this is what gives you dignity. This is what gives you meaning in life. That you were created in the image of God. And you have the capacity to honor God with your life. This is the storyline of the Bible. The four biblical covenants create the structure for all that God is going to do, all that he has done in history, and all that he will do in the future. So we are going to look at four covenants. Now, quickly, what is a covenant? Real simple. Uh, It's an agreement. It's a contract. This is the biblical word for a contract. It's a binding agreement between two or more more parties. A covenant might be a promise that a greater party makes to a lesser party. I'm going to do this for you. Or it may be uh, two or more parties agree together. These are my responsibilities. These are your responsibilities. Covenant just means an agreement or contract. There are all kinds of different covenants throughout the Bible. We're just going to look at the primary four. First one is the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Now let's bring the story up to date. The setting of Genesis chapter 12 is that mankind continues in rebellion. Even after the flood. Remember one of Noah's sons is evil and (laughs) things get worse and they get worse and worse and worse and worse and all mankind turns again away from God. And as they're turning away from God, they decide they're going to build a tower. And this this is theologically significant because remember God said, spread out. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take my glory out. Instead, they said, no, no, let's gather together. So they all come together and they build a tower up to the sky. They're going to reach up into the heavens. Okay, they're, they're giving into the original temptation again. We can be like God. We can build high. Let's burn our bricks thoroughly as we make this because what if God sends another flood? Well, we will be protected because we built it sturdy against a flood. They don't take God at his word. They don't trust him. So instead... They're building, and they're building higher, and God looks down, and he says, you know, when they have the capacity to all get together, it's really bad, because they just get worse and worse and worse, and the fact is, I know what's going to happen. They'll destroy themselves, so I'm going to protect them from self-destruction, and God comes down, and he mixes up all their languages. So they can't collude any longer. They can't get together, and they spread out, and they're still evil, but they're not as evil, because they're broken up in all these different parts. God still hasn't given up, though. He looks out and he finds one man again in his family, and he says, you know what, I'm going to pick that one, and I'm going to bless him so that he, through his family, can carry the knowledge of me throughout all of creation. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This is an enormously significant passage. Uh, Some have called it the backbone of Scripture. It's the thread that ties all things together. You should probably just fold this page down. God gives Abraham a promise. Notice it was given about 2090 B.C., as best as we can estimate from the, the data that's in the Bible. Let's pull this covenant apart. Significant passages. We probably won't be able to go through all of them. Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 26. We'll go through a few of those. What you should notice uh, in Genesis chapter 12 is that the parties to this covenant are God. God's initiating it. God comes to Abraham. Abraham doesn't go and seek out God. Abraham, in fact, is a a pagan idolater when God comes and finds him. He's an Ur of the Chaldees. He's not worshiping the Lord. And he makes Abraham a promise, and the promise extends to Abraham, but also to Abraham's seed or Abraham's descendants. Notice also, this is what's known as a grant covenant. Okay, God says, I will, I will, I will. I will do these things. God's making a promise to Abraham. This is what's going to happen. So Genesis 12 is known formally as, as the promise. As we're going to see in just a moment, Genesis chapter 15, God comes back later and he ratifies this covenant formally. Okay, this is a grant covenant. Three promises are given. He's going to receive land, a seed or descendants, and blessing. The land is significant because Abram doesn't own a huge area of land. Okay? And he's living somewhere away from the land. Abram, Abraham has uh, no children. And he's old. He has no descendants at this point. And he's going to be blessed. And what is that blessing exactly? Well, you know, that comes in time. God reveals more of the specifics of what that blessing is going to be. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for now, notice that it is a land, a seed, and a blessing. God has made a promise. And we know that Abraham believed God because he packed up his family and he moved. God said, if you want to receive this promise from me, then I want you to leave your family and move. Did Abraham obey perfectly? No, but he started. Okay? He took some of his family with him, which caused him problems later. Right? Whenever we don't perfectly obey, it gives us fits. Uh, his son or his nephew Lot came with him and they had conflict and they had to divide land and it, it was a mess. And then he had to rescue him. It was, it was a messy business. But he started. He's kind of like us. He took a step of faith, and he began this journey of faith following the Lord. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Let's read beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, Oh, Lord, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, I have a servant in my house who's a great servant. But everything I own is going to go to him because I have no children. God, I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. How will I know that you will fulfill your promise to me? And Abraham said, since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it or credited it to him as righteousness. Underline, highlight, circle, fold the page down. Genesis 15 verse 6 is the foundation for our entire understanding of salvation in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul builds his salvation theology based upon Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
Abraham believed. Abraham believed. Paul's argument in Romans, Romans chapter 4, tells us Abraham was not credited as having a right relationship with God because he did good works. He wasn't credited because he got circumcised. That came 14 years later. That was just a sign of his faith that God would provide a seed. He wasn't credited as being righteous because he obeyed the law, because the law didn't come for another 400 years. It was just because he believed. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abram didn't have all the information that we have, but the information that God gave him, he believed. Now you know that Jesus Christ has come. God has come in human flesh. And Jesus died on a cross to make payment for your sins. You have that information. God has told you. It's been revealed. And all that you have to do to have eternal life in a right relationship with God is you believe. This morning, if you have never said, God, I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe what you have revealed in Christ. If you've never made that decision, please, right now where you're sitting, go before the Lord and say, God, I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. When you do that, just like Abraham, you are put in right relationship with God. That's what righteousness is, this justification by faith. We're going to talk a lot about that when we get into Galatians. I just wanted to highlight it this morning. This chapter goes on in 15, and God formally seals the covenant, so to speak. He ratifies it. Ratification in in uh, Hebrew was literally to cut. You'd cut a covenant because you'd take the animals and you'd, you'd split them down the spine and you'd lay them one side on, on one half and the other half on the other side and then the parties would walk in between them. Well, in the Abrahamic covenant, what happens? Abraham goes to sleep and God walks through. The image of God in a flaming torch and God recites his promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to do this thing. It's a promise. Okay, it's a promise. So, Fourth, the nature of this covenant is that it is irrevocable and everlasting. And I'm taking this language from Romans chapter 11, where Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul in Romans 11 is talking about the Abrahamic covenant. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, as we're going to see in Galatians, your relationship with God is irrevocable. These promises are irrevocable to Abraham. Look at one other passage in Genesis with me. Genesis chapter 26. This illustrates what I'm trying to say here. Genesis 26, let's read the first three verses. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, Besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Notice here, when he's speaking to Isaac, it's not dependent upon Isaac's performance It's not going to be dependent later on his son Jacob's performance or on the performance of his children. It's based upon a promise God made to Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, and he will keep those promises to Abraham. So it is irrevocable, and it is everlasting. Now, what's the deficiency or what's lacking in this promise? Well, there's no instruction or enablement to receive the promise. 
they don't know much about God. You know, we, we sit out and we pick up this Bible and we've got all this revelation about who God is. Well, what did they have? They, they had a few stories. And every once in a while, they would have a brief interaction where God appears in a burning bush or somebody has a vision and they pass on those stories to their heirs. But they didn't, they didn't, know, they didn't know God like we do. They didn't have the instruction, how, God, what do, you, what do you want us to do to, to participate in these promises? And there was no heart change. They were still fallen, broken creatures, and there wasn't placed within them this innate longing to pursue God. In fact, what you see in uh, Jacob's children, he has 12 sons. And once again, this family that God has chosen and rescued, that they would take his glory throughout all the nations. Instead, what happens is, uh, the family goes down. Man, they're, they're bad. At one point, Jacob says to two of his sons, he says, you have made me odious, stinky, in the sight of all the nations around these people that we live near, we're odious. We're not a blessing. They don't want us to live near them. I'm odious. And they begin to uh, intermarry with the people of the land. And as they intermarry and they take uh, the daughters of the land, then they become idolatrous like the people and the families just falling apart. There's all kinds of internal conflict and they're idolatrous. And so God steps in and is disciplined and he takes the family down to Egypt. It's discipline, but it's also protection, isn't it? He provides for uh, their physical needs. He isolates them racially because the Egyptians won't intermarry with them, won't intermingle with them. So they're protected. They're safe. They're also disciplined. They're taken out of God's land and they start as a family. Maybe 70, 80 people go down to Egypt, but then they really grow and they, 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 they're fruitful and they multiply and they become 2 million people. But they're 2 million slaves. And they're not experiencing blessing. And they cry out. They've heard about Yahweh, but they haven't heard anything more from him in 400 years. So we have a God, I think, but I guess he's off in that distant land and he can't hear us. And they're crying out, save us, save us. They cry out for deliverer. And God sends them Moses and he speaks to them again in another covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Okay, that's our second covenant, about 1446. So about... 500 years later, turn with me to the book of Exodus. There, one covenant down. We're not flying fast enough, are we? I get excited. I really, this is really neat stuff to me. Okay. So, here are the people. They've got a seed, right? They've multiplied. But they have no land, and they're not living in blessing. They have no organizational structure. They're not a nation. They have nothing binding them together or relating them to God. So God comes and he speaks. He gives them the Mosaic law. It is their constitution. It tells them how do we relate to one another and how do we as a nation relate to God if we want to enjoy his blessings. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Okay, they've already been rescued. They've passed through the Red Sea. They've gone through the wilderness. They're still in the wilderness. Third month, chapter 19, verse 1. It says, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So did you notice that this is a different covenant, isn't it? It's a very different covenant. But did you also notice that the themes are very similar? God says, I'm going to take you and you shall be my people. And I'm going to make you my people. And then I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. What was God's original plan? That men and women would represent his personality, his glory, his nature, his attributes throughout the world. What is Israel's calling? Just to receive the blessings and store them up for themselves? No, but to be a kingdom of priests so that through you, all the nations would see and understand what I am like. What does it mean to be rightly related to God? How do you live life rightly related to God? You will be a kingdom of priests. That is the same theme that God started with. That's the purpose. Now, notice, who are the parties involved in this covenant? It's God and Israel, or God and the seed of Abraham, the racial seed of Abraham. Those are the parties that are involved in the covenant. The promises are blessings and cursings. Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and your young flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. In all times you will be blessed. And notice the blessings are physical, but they're also spiritual. You will be uniquely related to God. You'll have a special relationship with God if you obey. On the other hand, If you disobey, what's going to happen? Look in verse 15. But it shall come about. If you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you go, come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. It's very different from the Abrahamic covenant, isn't it? Abrahamic covenant, God says, I will. It's a grant covenant. It's a promise covenant. This, on the other hand, is a conditional covenant. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. You shall, you shall, you shall, you shall. Hey, that's the nature of this covenant. It's a very different covenant. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3. It says, Then Moses came and he recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. uh, Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai. He's received the Ten Commandments, which are basically, it's like the table of contents for the law. And then you've got uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus that really expound upon this table of contents, okay? Moses has come down with these Ten Commandments and some of the laws, and the people said, 
man, we're in. Count us in. Everything you've said, we're going to do. All that. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Now notice this. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the altar gets some blood, the people get some blood, God makes promises, the people make promises. This is a bilateral covenant. Okay, each party has responsibility. Notice also this is a blood covenant. This is really a serious covenant. The imagery is this, that if you break the covenant, that's the consequence for you. Death is the consequence. That's why I wrote it as a binding covenant. All the conditions of this covenant have to be fulfilled before it could be set aside. It must be fulfilled. And if you break the covenant, you have a debt. That is the basis of the sacrificial system. The wages of breaking covenant with God is death. So if an Israelite breaks the covenant with God, he brings an animal and says, please accept this as my substitute. So that I don't have to die, take this as my substitute. But as Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. All that they could do was set aside the debt for a while. So Israel, as they sin, is accumulating debt. Sound familiar? Somebody's going to have to pay for that debt. Sometime. You can't just say it goes away because God is absolutely holy and righteous and good. So we have all of this accumulated debt. And I want you to take that idea and just file it away for a minute. We're going to come back to it. Accumulated debt, debt that's just set aside, payment postponed based upon the sacrificial system. Conditional and binding. What's the relationship of this covenant to the Abrahamic covenant? This is really, really critical. We'll spend a lot of time on this topic in Galatians. This covenant doesn't take the place of the other covenant. It doesn't take the place of the Abrahamic covenant. This is not a new way to get saved either. You know, it's not, okay, Abraham believed, but now we've got to keep the law. No, Abraham believed, and that is a paradigm for all of mankind. You want right relationship with God? Believe. But for each generation of Israelites, if they wanted to enjoy God's blessings in the land, as he promised, this is what God said you have to do. Keep the law if you want to enjoy these blessings that I have promised for each generation. What's the problem? Well, you've got requirement without enablement. (laughs) This is what I want you to do, but he doesn't give them the corresponding heart to do it. Now, interestingly, within the law, God would say, I know that you actually can keep it. You know, at least externally, you can. That's not the problem. As a matter of fact, remember Paul says, I kept the law. But within his heart, his heart hadn't changed. And so what the law would say is, the issue is not that you cannot do it, but that you will not do it. Because there is no changed heart. So you might be able to keep the externals, but inside, the heart has not changed. And if you look at the history of Israel, you see this worked out. They go in and they conquer the land, but they don't obey God completely. They leave some of the enemies in the land, and those enemies become a snare to them. 
And those enemies trip them up and they begin to intermarry again and they do idolatrous practices. And then God sends disciplinarians into their lives. You know, Midianites and Amorites and different people come and they discipline them. They cry. They say, oh God, we're so sorry. Please deliver us. We repent. And God says, okay, I'll, I'll send a deliverer or a judge. The whole book of Judges is about this. He sends the deliverer, the judge. The judge helps the people. They, they, they follow God for a while, and then they get tired of following God, and they want to be like the nations around them. They fall back into sin, and then they're disciplined, and they say, oh, God, we're sorry again. Please send us another deliverer. He sends another judge, and you go this cycle over and over and over again. Finally, the people even get fed up with this, and they say, you know, if we were just like the nations around us and had a king, We don't need a judge. We need a king. If we had a king like the nations around us, then we could follow you, God. Send us a king. God says, all right, I'll send you your kind of king. And from the outside, he looks great. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. Man, he he is it physically. He, He looks like a king. But what's the problem? His heart. That's King Saul. He fails miserably. And so God says, well, I'm going to select my own king king after my own heart, and he goes and finds David, the the youngest son, just a young shepherd boy. God knows his heart, that he loves God, and he wants to worship God. His his life is already, he's a young boy. He's a worshiper of God. And David performs well. Does he perform perfectly? Oh, no. No, lots of bad stories about bad decisions David made. But David loved the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. When he sinned, he repented He wanted his whole nation to worship the Lord so badly that he said, can I build a temple so that, God, you can be worshipped? Because God said, no, you're not going to build a temple. Your son will. But because of David's heart, God gave David another covenant. It's another grant covenant. It's a promise. That's our third covenant. Davidic covenant was promised to David about 977 B.C., so another 500 years. Turn with me to 2 Samuel Chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, let's read beginning in verse 18. Uh, Nathan is instructed to go to speak to David. The Lord says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So quickly, a couple key passages. We'll look at Psalm 89 in a minute. The parties are God, David, and David's descendant or David's seed. It extends beyond David. The promises, a house, 
throne and a kingdom. The house is descendants. You will have descendants. They will sit on a throne. That is, they will have authority to rule. And they will have a kingdom. That is, they will have a realm over which to rule. The nature, it is an irrevocable and everlasting promise. This is a promise made to David for all generations. Your throne, your kingdom will be established forever. What is the relationship to the Abrahamic covenant? Well, it clarified the seed. Who is the seed? It comes from Abraham. Now we know it comes from the tribe of Judah. And it comes from the family of David. So the Israelites knew who to look for who could lead their people to obey the law so that God could send all of his blessings. That's relationship to the Mosaic covenant. The king governed underneath the Mosaic covenant or under the law. The king was evaluated by the law. Did he lead the people to obey the law? If he did, the nation was blessed. If he didn't, the nation was cursed. If he did, his life was blessed. If he didn't, his life was cursed. And if you look at the history of the kings of Israel, what do you see? Very, very, very few of them led the people into obedience. There were very, very few good kings. And so what happens? The people are accumulating debt. Every once in a while, you'll see a bright shining star like Josiah. Josiah is the the son of Ammon, who was a wicked king. He only reigned two years. And Ammon was the son of an even wickeder king, Manasseh. So the grandson comes in at age eight. He starts to rule and to reign. When he is 26 years old, somebody finds the law. Okay? Somebody finds the instruction manual. You understand the implication of that is they haven't been living by the instruction manual. Nobody even remembers that it exists. They're digging through the temple and somebody goes, whoa, <laughs> better show this to the king. They go over and they read it to Josiah and he says, oh no, tears his clothes, gets on his face. He says, go, somebody go quickly, ask God Are we about to be wiped off the face of the earth because we have not kept God's law? And he's told us, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. In fact, if you disobey long enough and I discipline and discipline and discipline you, I might just take you off the land entirely. God, what's going to happen? A prophetess speaks and she says, go tell that man, yeah, your nation is going to get it. But because you have a soft heart, it's not going to happen in your day. But don't be deceived. Your nation's going to get it because this debt must be paid. And so shortly after Josiah, what happens? The people are taken off of the land. That is a fulfillment of God's promise to the nation of Israel. If you disobey, I will remove you from my land. So the people are taken off of the land. They're spread out. They're all over the place. But a lot of them are, are in Babylon. The northern kingdom's already been taken away into Assyria, and they're, boy, they're, they're just everywhere. But then a big group of them are taken into Babylon. And there in Babylon, in exile, under God's discipline, God speaks to them again. He says, I'm going to send you a new covenant, and it's a lot better covenant. You're going to like this one. Okay? Oh, deficiency. Here again, the issue, no changed heart. Okay? The, the king is ruling under the law but he can't rule well. Why? Because there hasn't been this internal transformation. So every king, they're looking for him to do well, and he fails, and he fails, and he fails. Okay, so fourth covenant is the new covenant. It's given about 580 BC, roughly. That's when the prophets speak while the people are in exile. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Okay, now we'll really, really fly, but I promise we'll do a lot of New Covenant stuff when we hit Galatians. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 31. Look in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who are the participants? Israel and Judah. Remember, the nation had been divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. He says, I'm making this covenant with Israel and Judah, with both. Part of the the blessings will be, I will reunite them into one nation. It is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. What covenant is he referring to there? Mosaic. Thank you. That is a reference to the Mosaic covenant. And he says the new covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant. It's a completely different kind of covenant. This is why, in brief, I am not a covenant theologian if you care about these theological issues. Because in covenant theology, they see all of these covenants as just Different manifestations of the same covenant. They're not. They're not. God says this is a different covenant. It's so very different. It's not a conditional covenant. There's not a lack of power. The, the essence of this covenant is that I will empower you to change you so that you can receive the promises from me. I can bless you because I'm going to make you different people. Look in verse 33. He says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. All that accumulated debt, part of this covenant, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to pay it. Gone. Forever. Completely. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's sitting there. Somebody's got to pay it. In this covenant, I'm going to deal with that problem. Verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Do you see the beauty of that? Here's your other object lesson with your kid. Did you see the sun today? Then God's going to keep his promises to Israel. See the stars at night? Then God's going to keep his promises to Israel. Can anyone search out the depths of the ocean or the heights of the heavens? No, no one can. This is a promise that God will keep. Okay, Let me fly through this real quickly so that you can fill in uh, your outline because I know everybody likes to have the outline filled in before they leave. God, Israel, and Judah are the parties. This covenant is made with Israel. This covenant is not made with the church. Now the beauty is that when we believe, we get grafted into this covenant That's Romans chapter 11. So we get to participate in it, but it wasn't initially made with us, but we get pulled in. And so some of those blessings we get to enjoy and participate in. We'll talk more about that when we hit Galatians. The promises, spiritual regeneration and physical blessing. Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 36. 
There is a, a, a brand new heart. God's spirit comes and dwells inside of us. What is this? Well, this is a return to Eden, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's perfect, right relationship with God, and God is living in us. Those, those dead bones, that valley of dead bones that Ezekiel sees the vision, what happens to those dead bones? Man, they stand up. And there's flesh on them, and there is muscle on them, and they live. That is an image of regeneration. Okay, so there's spiritual blessing. There's also physical blessing. Israel's going to be brought back onto the land. And all those things we read, you know, in Mosaic Covenant, be fruitful in, uh, you know, your house. And when you go in and come out and your crops and everything, man, all that's going to happen as a result of fulfillment of the new covenant. It hasn't happened yet, has it? <laughs> no, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. The nature, it is irrevocable and everlasting. If you see the sun in the sky, you see the stars, then you know God's going to keep his word. If those things disappear, then God says, then I'll break my word, but I'm not going to. They're there, right? Okay? Irrevocable and everlasting. What's the relation to the Abrahamic covenant? It provides the enablement to receive the promises. It enables us to receive the promise. God, God can't bless sin. And so what does he do? He comes and lives inside and he causes us to obey. Relation to the Mosaic covenant. New covenant supersedes the Mosaic covenant. Romans chapter eight, Paul says, for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his son. So Jesus comes, he lives under the law, right? He never, ever, ever breaks the law. He perfectly obeys the law. And then he dies as a sacrifice for all of those sins. Remember all this debt over here. There's just this big, ugly mound of debt. Jesus pays for all of that. He has the right to pay for all that because he is the perfect Israelite. He lives righteously under the law. He has a right to pay that debt. And because that debt is paid, all the conditions of the law have been met. Jesus says, now I can start a new covenant. Because all that's been paid. And so he takes his disciples aside beforehand. He says, what's about to happen? That's going to be the, the, the inauguration of a new covenant. This cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. This bread, it's my body broken. This is a reminder of a brand new covenant that is coming. And it's promised way back. Okay, it's promised way back. 600 B.C. And Israel is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for it. And they're looking for a king or Messiah, the Son of God, he doesn't come, he doesn't come, he doesn't come. And then Jesus comes, he says, I'm it. I'm the son of God. I, I'm the king. I am, I'm Messiah. And they say, we don't want you. And they reject him. And because they reject him, they remain under the law, carrying all of their own debt. Because they haven't let Jesus pay their debt. And so they are still, in fact, under the law. Remember, in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman emperor, comes in and he destroys the temple and the people are scattered. And what happens to them? In fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant, which they have chosen to live under, they're thrown off the land again. And where are they now? They're scattered all over the place. Well, miraculously, they've been brought back again. Interesting, isn't it? Okay. But the new covenant has not yet been fulfilled. Let me visualize this for you. Okay, uh, Relation to the Davidic covenant, it provides a descendant of David to rule forever. This tells us who he is. Not just any old descendant of David. We know now. Okay, that's why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so absolutely critical to our theology. He's the one. Okay, he's the son of David. Visually, what does it look like? 
New Covenant's promised 580 BC. They're waiting for it. Christ comes and says, this is the new covenant. They didn't realize that he had to die to remove the debt of sin and give forgiveness. He establishes the covenant. Now look, this neat little visual trick on PowerPoint that helps develop our theology or express it rather, right? Uh, Mosaic covenant, that's gone. There you go. Okay. We no longer live under the law because it was weak, we're told in Hebrews. There's no empowerment. And so in Christ, it's set aside. And now Christ lives out through us. And we are waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham through the son of David, empowered by the new covenant that will happen in the millennial kingdom. We know it's a millennium or a thousand years from Revelation. Better name for it is the Davidic kingdom. Okay? All of our, our eschatology is based upon the promises that were made in the covenant. Now, very quickly, application. God keeps his word. Okay? If God promised it, it's going to happen. If God has promised you eternal life in Jesus Christ, it's going to happen. You don't have to live in fear. Out of gratitude, we want to live in obedience to him. But, you know, we will fail. And when we do, the wonderful thing is we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And we go and say, Jesus, thank you that you already paid for that. And you knew ahead of time it would happen. Thank you. And in faithfulness to his promises, he keeps us and guards us in right relationship to God. Always. So as we close, I want us just to spend a moment or two. Let's just give thanks. God, thank you that you're faithful to your promises. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the midst of uh, so much history and information that we would not lose sight of the essential fact that you always keep your word. It is part of your essential nature. You are faithful to your word. And I thank you, Lord, that we have Jesus and we know that we will always have him because you promised us. Father, I pray that you'd send us out today just with a deeper sense of gratitude for your son, Jesus Christ, and a deeper hunger really to know and understand you through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for sticking with me, staying a little long. Have a great day.